Well, as some of you may know, I grew up in Griffith, and when I was growing up there as a teenager, our youth group had to make a little square that was going to be part of the new backdrop curtain at the Griffith Regional Theatre. Here's a picture of the finished curtain here. It's this massive curtain that goes behind the stage. And the way they made it is they got some artistic director guy in from outside of Griffith and he split up this curtain into really tiny sections and he gave each section to a different part of the community to work on. So our school art class was working on a piece that we muffed up so badly that um, we got taken out of the thing and we got given to someone else. But our church youth group got a section to make and when we were given this little part that we had to work on, it looked like a bit of a joke. No wonder our year eight art class was mucking up. Some people got to make hills or oranges for the curtain. You can see the little oranges on the um, citrus trees, perhaps on the left. But other parts just looked like a complete mess. It was just looked like random pieces of material stuck on a curtain or bits of wool going back and forwards. And so when you're working on your own section, you didn't get to see all the other sections. It wasn't until the opening night when the curtain was launched at the theatre and everyone got to see their, the whole thing. It was amazing. And uh, suddenly you see how the whole picture fitted together and you, we could all walk up and touch it and so forth. So some bits of little wool just going back and forwards down the bottom there turned out to be wheat. And other pieces of um, wool turned out to be roofs of houses and so on. Your little bit didn't make sense, but the whole thing was a masterpiece and someone had planned it all out. And even though we couldn't see the details of the bit we were given, the whole thing what did work out, and it was spectacular. And if you go to Griffith, right now they do tours of it three times a day. I can't even remember which part we worked on. It was sort of so obscure. But anyway, that's the curtain. Now, I think that's a little bit like what's happening in today's passage in 1 Samuel. Because as the reading was read, did you notice what we're getting are battle preparations for the Philistine army as they go to attack Saul? And it's essentially an argument between the Philistine commanders as to whether they should take David into battle with them or not. And if that's all you were reading on your own, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. In fact, you might even wonder why it's in the Bible, since there's only one reference to God in it, and that's actually from the Philistine commander making an oath. But if you step back and think about what we've been seeing in 1 Samuel so far and how it fits into the rest of the Bible then it will help us appreciate that God is at work and he has a plan. And this chapter is one part of his plan. And even the leaders of the Philistine army and even David in his disobedience at this point, they are all under the control of God. And he's bringing about his masterpiece. He's writing history. And that's a great encouragement for us, I think, because sometimes... We can't see what's going on in our lives. Sometimes for us it's hard to see the big picture because of the details we're stuck in at the time. But today's passage is a great comfort and encouragement that God is at work in everything to bring about good. So firstly let's work our way through 1 Samuel 29. It's quite a short chapter and then we'll think about how it fits in with the rest of 1 Samuel. So verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. Now, at that point, a map might be helpful. 
So there's the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, Israel split bang in the middle. And that's Afek, right over on the coast, up high. That's where the Philistines are assembling their forces. And meanwhile, it says the Israelites are camped by the spring in Jezreel. Okay, that's way up there. That's a long, long way north. Jezreel is a valley between two hills. Now, most of what we've been looking at so far in the whole book of 1 Samuel for the last two years, we've been in 1 Samuel for two years now, has been all down there. So Saul was born in Gibeah. Um, That was where he was out looking for his donkeys, do you remember? Samuel was from Ramah, and that's where Samuel um, died a few weeks ago, remember, and they mourned for him. And David was from Bethlehem, just there. And two weeks ago, we saw that David ran away and joined the enemy, and that was way over at Gath. See, that's over near the coast, because the the coast is where the Philistines are. So that was two weeks ago. David ran um, away to Gath. And do you remember there, the king of Gath, Achish, gave a city to David called Ziklag, and that was way down there. That's like right at the bottom of the Philistines. You can have that, David. And what's happening in 1 Samuel 29 is the Philistines, who lived right along the coast, I've got to remember your map's on this side, not that side, Um, they are marching up to Aphek, where they're all getting ready to head up and fight Israel way up at Jezreel. But now in these chapters, we're talking about massive troop movements. We've gone from that little circle down the bottom to the whole big um, picture, and it's all heading towards this big battle up the top. So here in chapter 29, the Philistine armies, they're all in convoy. They're marching north. You've got David and his men are right at the back. Verse 2. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, massive army, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. Now, remember, King Achish, who's given David Gath, he's only one of the Philistine rulers. If you remember all the way back to chapter 5, do you remember when they conquered the Ark and they took the Ark off Israel and the Ark got sent round like hot potato, to the five Philistine cities with their kings. So that was Ashdod, Gaza, Eshkelon, Gath, and Ekron. So David is only friendly with one of those kings. There's four other Philistine kings. And the other Philistine kings, they notice these Israelites at the back of the pack. They're a bit surprised that the enemy is marching into battle with them. Verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines asked... What about these Hebrews? Now, it is a bit strange. David and his men should be heading up to Jezreel, way up north, with Saul to fight against the Philistines, not marching with them. This would be like the Melbourne Storm running out on the football field tonight for the NRL Grand Final, all in their beautiful purple jerseys, ready to stand for the national anthem. And then at the end of their um, lineup, there's some Cowboys players. In the Cowboys' jerseys, the other team alongside them, that would be just stupid, okay? They, they, they're, they're against each other. You don't have people from the opposite team playing on your side. But here's David and a bunch of Israelites, remember there was about four or 600, marching into battle with the Philistines and their enemies. It's stupid. And Achish tries to explain to the other Philistine leaders why he would have David coming into battle with him because David's a great guy and I trust him and so forth, but these other kings, they're not convinced. In fact, it's worse. Not only are they not convinced, they get angry. Verse 3. 
The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? But he has already been with me for over a year. From the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault with him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. Of course he will. He's been an Israelite all his life. He's only been with you for a year. How better could he regain his master's favour, that is Saul's, than by taking the heads of our own men? Okay, they're a bit street smart. They're a bit battle-wise. This is all just too convenient. What's going to stop David at the last minute turning against them and fighting for Saul? And they're probably right. Because that's the kind of thing David had already been doing. Do you remember last week? He's been lying to King Achish and he hasn't been fighting for him at all. But King Achish still believes David at this point. He's almost apologetic to David. David's the one lying here, remember, but King Achish seems to have this great integrity and he wants to protect David, his loyal servant. Verse 6. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. That there's the only mention of God by his name, Yahweh, in this chapter there, and it's from the lips of Achish, the Philistine king. David doesn't mention God at all. It seems to be Achish is the good noble one here. David's just lying. And David continues to lie. Verse 8, he pretends that he's completely innocent on Achish's side. What have I done? Asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you till now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered, I know that you've been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who've come with you, that is David's men, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. And so that's what David does. He and his men turn around. So David and his men got up early in the morning, went back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel, that is all the way up to the top, to fight Saul. Now that's, that's the end of this chapter. It's just sort of David getting sent back home. What's it all about? Why does it even matter? Why spend all this time explaining why David didn't go somewhere? Well, the key to that, I think, is in verse 1. Because verse 1 tells us when all this happens, and this is a little bit surprising and you may not even notice, have noticed it as you read. Verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, that's down there, and Israel camped by the spring of Jezreel. When is all this happening? When in time is this compared to, say, the last chapter when Saul was up at Endor and there was the big um, Philistines against him? The surprise is that this is happening before what we read about last week. This is before Saul and the witch of Endor. 
In other words, chapter 9, which we're looking at today, happened before chapter 28. Sorry, chapter 29 happened before 28. Now, that's a bit strange, I know, but the writer of 1 Samuel has deliberately swapped the order of things to create a tension. It's the kind of thing they do in a movie where you have a flashback to something that happened earlier. This chapter is a flashback. Now, to see where it fits in, have a look with me at chapter 28, the chapter we were looking at last week. So chapter 28 and verse 1, which we didn't look at last week. We skipped over it because it's really the timing of this week. In those days, that's um, the, well, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me, accompany me in the army. Now, that's obviously happened before today's chapter. David's getting the invitation, come and fight with us. But then in chapter 28, verse 4, we jump forward in time. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. Now, if we have a look on our map, Shunem is way up there, okay? So the Philistines are now at Shunem, which means this is after they're at Aphek. Aphek was on the way, see? And on the other side of the valley... It says Saul gathered the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. That is there. That is last week. Okay? And what's going to happen way up there in chapter 31 is there's a massive final battle, which this whole, the whole few chapters are heading towards, where Saul will be killed. And it's up there that Saul sees the Philistine army arrive from Aphek, and there's tons of them, and he goes to the witch at Endor, which we read about last week. So that was all last week, but now today we're taken back in time before the Philistines got to Shunem when they were gathering at Aphek. Now, so the big question is, where's David in all of this? In all of what we looked at last week when Saul was going to the witch of Endor, what's David doing? Will David um, head up to north and fight with the Philistines, like Achish thinks he's going to do? Or will he cross over and fight with Saul? And that's kind of the tension that we were meant to be feeling last week. Whose side will David fight on? Now, that's a problem for David, because whichever side he chooses to fight on, he's going to lose. See, on their way up, if David chooses to stay with the Philistines and fight against Saul when they arrive up north... That's going to be a problem because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And we've already seen David is not allowed to lay a hand on Saul. David can't harm Saul. So it's going to look pretty silly if David's fighting against Saul, but then he can't actually kill him. On the other hand, if at the last minute David crosses over, like we may be expecting that he might, and fights on Saul's side, the problem is that David has won every battle that he's been fighting. He completely demolished Goliath. If he fights for Saul, Saul will win. But that can't happen because God has already promised that tomorrow Saul will die. Do you remember that's what God promised last week? Saul will die. Israel are going to lose this battle. So David can't be fighting for Israel um, and be on the losing side. So what will David do? When he gets up there, will he just sort of hide and hope no one notices him? Will he run away? Well, that's what chapter 29 is about. God takes care of it all. God takes the 
decision completely out of David's hands, even though David at this time has no regard for God, even though David, remember, at this time is not inquiring of God for help, he's not going to the ephod anymore, that doesn't happen until chapter 31 that he returns to God. Even though David has been churning out all the psalms for the previous chapters, in this time of his life, in over a year, there's no psalms coming from David. Even though David sort of has gone completely off the rails here, it seems, with regard to God, God is still looking after David to bring about his plan. And so in chapter 29, we're taken back in time to when the Philistines were assembling to fight Israel, and we find out David never went into battle with them. The Philistine rulers sent him home. And in these circumstances that are completely outside of David's control, when David isn't even inquiring of God, God pulls David out of the battle to protect him. And next week we're going to see that God puts David in a really bad situation because of what's happening right now, where David will be forced to turn back to God and ask for help. And at the very same time that he's pulling David out of the battle and preparing him for what's going to happen next week, God leaves Saul in the battle where he will die. So God's promises to protect David and God's promises to kill Saul are all going to come through. And God does this all through the Philistines, through his enemies, as these rugged Philistine commanders just have a chat about whether David is on their side or not. And so what we see when we step back and we get the big picture is that God is at work in all the events of history to bring about his purposes, even these bits that seem a bit random and a bit out of his control. All the decisions of the Philistine army leaders are part of God's plan. And that's how God works. Time and time again in the Bible, we see that kind of thing happening, don't we? I mean, if you remember way back to the book of Genesis, where Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, And they faked his death and they kill the animal and put the blood on him and tell his father that he's dead and they sell him to slave traders from Egypt, hoping never to see him again. And looking back on those events years later, when Joseph had been put in a very responsible position, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God was at work even as Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Or go back um, a bit after that, but still before David, when the pharaoh of Egypt has all the baby boys thrown into the Nile River. God used those evil events and then Moses getting put in the bulrushes and putting into uh, Pharaoh's palace so that he could use Moses to rescue the Israelites from slavery. God's hand at work in history, in the lives of pagan leaders. And we see it most clearly in the death of Jesus, don't we? Like Alan was talking about in the kids' talk. Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee, and Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, neither of them God-fearing men, they work together to have an innocent man executed. And Peter says that was all part of God's plan. Acts 4, 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See, God's plan was always that Jesus would die so that we could be forgiven and that Jesus would be risen to life again as ruler of this world. And he worked that plan out in real events in history through the Roman governor and through the Jewish king of the day. See, nations come and nations go. Armies rise and armies fall. Kings come and kings go. But all these are under the sovereign, powerful hand of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 29, it's another reminder that God is involved in every nitty-gritty detail of what happens in this world. And it should give us great encouragement as we live as followers of Jesus. Because what we're seeing is that God's plans are unstoppable. God holds the history of this planet in his hands. And it doesn't matter what goes on around us. It doesn't matter how Christian our government is or how much against God our government is. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. It doesn't matter what's going on in your workplace or at your place of study at the moment. Family life might be hard for you. There might be sicknesses that you're struggling with. You might be under incredible pressures. I don't know what's going on in your lives. But be encouraged that whatever is going on around you, God is at work. Even if you can't see it at the time. See, who knows who might be watching the way that you react under pressure? Who knows what God might be doing in the lives of people around you right now? perhaps even through you. And so as you head into this week ahead, whatever it is that you might be doing, remember that God is at work. God is at work to bring about his kingdom. God is bringing people to know Jesus. God is spreading this message of Jesus all around the world. Surely that will give us confidence as we try to talk to people about Jesus, won't it? I mean, it's great that God involves us in bringing the message of Jesus to other people and we want to be taking every opportunity to talk about Jesus when we can, but we also need to remember, don't we, that this is God's work, not ours. We have a a part to play, but God is the one making it all happen. So as you take a risk to talk to, to someone about Jesus this week, be encouraged that God is at work in them a long time before you turn up on the scene. God is, at lives in the work, God is at work in the lives of people you work with in ways that you may never see. And you're just one part in that plan. God is at work in the lives of your neighbours, your family members. And you don't know how. And you don't know what part you will play. But his plans are unstoppable. And we get the privilege of being caught up in them. It's a bit like that curtain I was talking about at the start. Sometimes we don't see the big picture. 
because of everything that's going on around us. But from where God sits, he sees everything. And everything has a purpose. And he is working out everything according to his plan, which is to bring everyone under the knee of Jesus when Jesus returns. His plan is to be calling people back to Jesus so that they repent before that final day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have a plan for this world that you have created. And Father, thank you that you have revealed that plan to us, that you've led us in on your big picture. Thank you that even from before the creation of the world, you tell us that you had a plan that Jesus would die so that even after we turned against you, we could be forgiven and come back to you. And Father, thank you that even though in the Old Testament, like with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and even David, there was little glimpses of what that plan was, but thank you that we see it clearly as we see Jesus. And Father, thank you that right now the gospel is going out around the world and you are at work in our lives and in the lives of people around us. So help us not to despair or give up or stop praying or stop talking to people about Jesus when we think that we can't see results for what's happening. Father, thank you that you are at work. And Father, we pray that that might give us confidence and boldness and comfort this week, whatever that we're doing, that you're at work in our lives. Amen.